You heard it here first that Independence Day will be our big coming out party as a nation from this pandemic. And President Joe Biden pretty much said it last night. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon. Laura Johnston has taken a couple of days off to go skiing somewhere with deeper snow. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I'm, I'm glad Friday. you're not gloating at all about your July 4th. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember people pushing back on that, suggesting that maybe I was out of my mind thinking the nation would be back that early. I couldn't believe it. It was like he used the same words, you know, independence from COVID. Well, it was set up. It was like the volleyball. Just <laughs> the only thing he, he said that I was a little bit surprised by is that he would allow small gatherings. And I'm betting that we have fireworks everywhere and you just have to wear a mask to go because how can you have a big coming out party on July 4th without having fireworks, right? Yeah, at least they're outdoors. Yeah, no, I, I think July 4th is going to mark our emergence from this horrible pandemic. Things are loosening up already. You know, Laura Johnston was at the airport this morning. She said the place is full and somebody else who flew this week said the it, it was full. People are starting to to loosen up as they get vaccinated and wear double masks. Let's begin. Why did an appellate court rule unanimously that the man who shot and killed Tamir Rice will not get his job back as a Cleveland police officer? Leila Tassi, it's amazing to me that we're this many years down the road and we're still debating this. Tamir mm -hmm. was killed in 2014. Right, right. And it basically sounds like this one boiled down to a technicality. Uh, a three-judge panel at the 8th District Court of Appeals in Cuyahoga County unanimously ruled that after an arbitrator upheld Timothy Lohman's firing, the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association had this three-month window to formally serve the city's attorneys with a copy of its application to vacate the results of that arbitration. And according to the court, the union blew past that deadline, so the courts lack the jurisdiction to hear the union's challenge. The union says it's going to appeal to the Ohio Supreme Court. And just to refresh everyone's memory, Tim Lohman wasn't fired for killing Tamir Rice. He was fired for lying on his initial job application to the Cleveland police about why he left his previous job at the Independence Police Department. And you'll remember that his personnel file from that police department noted that he left that job after a series of, of incidents, including one in which he showed up at the firing range weepy and distraught about a breakup with a girlfriend and his superiors didn't think that he was fit for their job. And Lohman wrote on his application to Cleveland police that he left of his own accord. So, of course, Cleveland later acknowledged that they never requested a copy of his personnel file. No, we did. The we're the ones that outed yeah, that one. Yeah, we're the ones who outed, outed that. So, yeah, yeah. But it was nearly two years after Tamir's death when Cleveland actually fired him. And the union appealed the firing to an arbitrator on the grounds that the city just waited too long. And the city prevailed in their defense of that. And, you know, eventually the union fought it all the way up to to this appellate court. Yeah. So, I mean, Samaria Rice, uh, Tamir's mother, was 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 pleased to hear the result. She put out a statement basically saying good riddance to the, to the officer who killed her, her child. Yeah, I, I just am surprised that this is still an issue. Anybody that watched the video, anybody that's looked at this record knows he should never be a police officer again. No, no. But here we are, what, nearly six and a half years down the road, and the police union is still fighting, although apparently an incompetent police union because they couldn't make a deadline that cost them their, their appeal. 
I can't imagine that any appellate court is going to disagree with this decision. He lied on his application. He wasn't honest. And, and, you know, you need honesty as a police officer. But poor Samaria Rice to have to sit there and and still wonder whether this mm-hmm. this man who killed her son could carry a badge and a gun again. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine set a threshold last week for when he will lift all coronavirus restrictions. So, Jane Cahoon, did we get any closer to that over the past week? We saw the first measure since he made the announcement. Yeah, we did did make some progress, although we're still a long way. Well, maybe not a long way, but we still have a ways to go. Let's put it that way. So we made progress this week. The rate dropped to 155 per 100,000 people. DeWine's benchmark is 50 per 100,000. That's what he wants to see before eliminating these uh, health orders. So the the 155 is down from 179 a week ago. But as I said, that remains well short of, of the 50 that we're, we're looking for here. So we're, we're edging along. DeWine characterized it as great progress, he said, but it's still a highly elevated level. It's, it's above what the CDC says is a high incidence level, but we're going in the right direction. So just to give you a little idea for comparison, the rate peaked at 845.5 cases per 100,000 and just in mid-December. Um, wow. And the last time we were below 50 was in June. The other semi-good news here is that, you know, we get this weekly alert map and that showed the best outlook in months. We had just 66 counties now on the level three red alert. And that's down uh, the past few weeks. It was 76, 80 and 84 counties. So that's going to be a lot, too. though. That's it's still, still a lot. And a um, lot of them are way above 50. I mean, there were only I mean, yeah. the number of counties that are getting close to the 50 and they're nowhere near northeast Ohio is pretty small. We yeah, got a long that would way be Vinton and Meg's counties. They're I, the only right. ones and below the 50 rate. If, if we're similar to numbers back in Wait, June, I, I don't remember feeling great about things in June. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. It's just compared to our, our you know, post uh, holiday season spike, things are looking pretty good, but we should not let our guard down. But at this rate, I think it might be around July 4th when we get to that rate. <laughs> what do you think? Stop it already. You're so obsessed with your cliche Independence Day thing. Uh, Yes, I am. I think that'll be a great way for the country to celebrate this horrible period. The other pretty great news that came out yesterday is how few cases there are in nursing homes. Yeah. Gee, I don't have that figure in front of me, but it dwindled to like, I want to say it was like 614 cases or something. And there used to be thousands. Um, But that's a real example of the targeting of nursing homes for the first round of of vaccines. And because of that, he's going to allow indoor visits in almost all the nursing homes for the first time in a long time. So mm-hmm. we're moving. It's 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 good news, but we're not there. And hopefully people will continue to have precautions so that we don't have another surge. The spring break travel, which, as we know from this morning's buzz at the airport, is a real thing, could create a spring break surge. Health experts are worried about that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the woman who took to Facebook to criticize a nursing home where her mother lived before she died going to prison as a Brook Park prosecutor with no regard for the First Amendment wished? Leila Tassi, this was an outrageous 
overstep by the prosecutor in Brook Park trying to lock somebody up for criticizing a nursing home on Facebook. What ended up with that case? Well, I I don't think she's going to prison. <laughs> so the backstory here stems from a series of Facebook posts that that this woman wrote accusing the Brook Park nursing home where her mother was living uh, in the time leading up to her death of of abusing her mother. And an administrator of the nursing home saw those messages as harassment and got the authorities involved. And uh, the woman was slapped with two first degree misdemeanors, telecommunications harassment and menacing by stalking. There were apparently some phone calls involved to to the nursing home. So yesterday, uh, a Berea municipal court magistrate dismissed the criminal charges against her because, well, another technicality, (laughs) neither a police department, police officer nor the Brook Park city prosecutor signed the complaints charging her with the crimes. But the case was dismissed without prejudice, which means they can file it again. The magistrate said he'd prefer cases be decided on the merits, not on technicalities like this. And the woman's defense team here is saying that these charges run afoul of the First Amendment because it impedes your ability to criticize businesses and medical institutions online. You know, I think this is an interesting one because you sound, Chris, pretty, pretty sure that, you know, this is this does run afoul of the First Amendment. But I'd like to see a sample of what this woman wrote. Wouldn't I mean, don't you want to see oh, that? She, I mean, she was blistering. I mean, but the, but the but there is a recourse to that. If the nursing home feels that she defamed them, yeah, that's so a civil suit. That's a you civil sue suit. for damages. It's not a criminal issue to say this nursing sure. home gave my mom deplorable care. But, but and, then know, do, the we really, sleaze... do we really categorize this as running a follow the First Amendment necessarily? Because that that is not necessarily. I mean, yeah. we have to divide I'm it allowed... into. Go ahead. I'm allowed to say that, that the nursing home stinks and killed my mother. I mean, that's my that, right. And, and killed my mother. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, that's not that, a but crime. That could be, I'm not saying it's a crime. I'm saying that if we're talking about the First Amendment, there are some things that I mean, yes, I don't think that the criminal charges were warranted, but but maybe this could have been a defamation case. I, I don't know. Yeah, But that's maybe. not a crime. You don't go to prison for that. The other thing that the prosecutor did that I thought was sleazy is after he got blasted by First Amendment lawyers saying you are way over the line. He piled on. He he said, well, she also called the nursing home 2000 times in 18 months. She was calling to either talk to her mother or check on her mother's condition. And he added that as the harassment instead sure, of sure. Mm-hmm. being reasonable. Look, this, this kind of case should never be in a criminal court. You shouldn't no, no, face no. losing agree, your yeah. liberty because you speak up. And if you do defame the, the nursing home, they have recourse to come at you. They have to prove it in a civil court. They, they, this is, you know, this gets back to the municipal courts and, and having them because you end up with small town prosecutors who are small minded and and do things that are not warranted and scare the hell out of a 64 year old woman who lost her mom and didn't get to see her in her final months. I mean, let, let's make it worse for her after she's suffered this torment. It, it, it's shameful what Brooke Park did here. You're listening to This Week in This CLE. What do the self-titled vaccine queens who have helped so many people get appointments for coronavirus vaccines think of the new centralized Ohio site for scheduling vaccinations? Layla, Cassie, I should disclose, I used the centralized site to set up an appointment at the Wolstein Center 
and that worked really well. Nothing else on the site worked, but that worked really well. What are the vaccine queens? Uh, you've been writing about them. You kind of brought them fame by writing about the great work they're doing. As soon as the site launched, they they checked it out and found it to be kind of garbage. <laughs> so for those who are for those who aren't familiar with the vaccine queens, these are two stay at home moms who discovered that they're just incredibly skilled at working the Internet and tracking down vaccine appointments online for folks who are eligible for it. And they've scheduled now well over 1,100 shots for people, mostly senior citizens. I get emails every day about how they've helped so many people see the light at the end of the tunnel that we're in. It's just really extraordinary. I love them. Well, they, they, they started off with a feeling of, you know, I just want to do my part to help Ohio get through this. But eventually they found themselves putting in eight to 10 hours a day on this project and working sometimes around the clock, like in the middle of the night, they would be refreshing their screens and basically helping people navigate the state's terrible vaccine scheduling system. And they started to get mad about it. They they told me, you know, why is it falling on the shoulders of two stay at home moms to do this? Where's the centralized system that DeWine keeps promising us? And then this week, when DeWine rolled out that promised system, the vaccine queens took it for a test run and immediately saw its flaws. Uh, this was before the Wolstein Center came online. They decided to write an op-ed for us and, and they called out the state for under-delivering. It's, a, it's supposed to be a one-stop shop for finding vaccines within 20 miles of you and scheduling your appointment directly on that site. But the way they describe it, it's, it's basically... You know, the way the vaccine queens describe it, it's, it's basically another layer of hassles that end up taking you to the same pharmacy websites that tell you no vaccine is available. Well, uh, it, so they it, they it, called it a glorified ad- address finder. And besides the function that helps you schedule for the Wilson Center, the rest of it really is that. It's worse than that. Look, I hadn't done it. I knew it was bad. But when I because I was becoming eligible, I started playing around and it was the, the system that we have is so bad. I was just bursting out laughing that anybody could design something so tedious and useless. I mean, every one of those sites that shows up on that statewide thing, you're right. You go to the drugstores or you go to whatever, and then you go through 50 keystrokes mm-hmm. before they come back and say, you got nothing. My favorite right. <laughs> is the giant eagle, the giant eagle and Mark system. They, they put you in a, a queue with a little green bar and a little guy walking in it. And it reminds you of the hallway that just stretches in front of you in the movies, the horror movies. And so it takes forever <laughs> for the guy to get to the, the little man to get to the end of the that long green bar. And once it does, it puts you in and you, <laughs> you fill out some stuff and then it takes you to a calendar. And almost always the calendar has a date highlighted for appointments. You click on the date that says, no appointments available. So you wait, you wait 45 minutes for the little guy to walk across the green thing. Then you get in, you go we'll through more keystrokes and you're, you're out of luck. That's Every- where the vaccine queens say, don't give up at that point. Once you're in, you just have to refresh, refresh, refresh. No, but, and, then, but, and then you have they, to do a hard refresh to clear the cookies and start over. No, they <laughs> kick you out after. They kick you out after 10 minutes. So they tell Can I add something 10 here? 10 minutes, you can't get an appointment. And then they kick you out and you have to start over. Jane Cahoon. Yeah. Could I remind people that the state is paying at least $3.6 million <laughs> for this website? They they paid a... Uh, Man. I think it's all right. But all that I should, said, have, I should have bid on that contract. I could have made it <laughs> websites. But, but all that the said... Vaccine Queens should have bid on the contract. <laughs> I'll do it. Hey, DeWine, I'll do it for $2.5 million. <laughs> but all that said, when they put on the Mass Vaccination Center, 
that could not have worked more smoothly. I sent out a text to the people on my uh, text account, letting them know. And I heard back from a bunch of people that said, wow, thank you. I got right in. It's incredibly simple. So that when once they got to the mass vaccination center, which they should have started with instead of making people go through this nonsense, that's working. And we'll have to see next week whether the center itself runs efficiently. But to get this thing up before they launch that, 17,000 people signed up just in one day for the mass vaccination center. So it seems like they might have turned the corner. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are some of the reasons that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine listed Thursday for why he will veto a bill that would severely restrict his powers to issue health orders that protect the public during pandemics? Jen Cahoon, he spoke pretty passionately about this, and he had what sounds like some pretty good ammunition to defeat this idea. Yeah, he clearly was ready for this question at his briefing on Thursday. He he not only reaffirmed that he was going to veto this bill, which is Senate Bill 22, he went into quite a lengthy explanation of how bad he thought this bill was. You know, he tried to be somewhat diplomatic when talking about the legislature, you know, who he said he's been trying to talk to. But but then he just said, you know, things like, you know, they really didn't really think this whole thing through and they didn't fully consider the the safety of their fellow citizens, which I thought was pretty damning. But, you know, he he had praised some changes that they made to this bill earlier this month. But then the House Republicans added other changes. And he said, you know, they just made it worse. He was raising constitutional questions, which we've talked about before, about restricting the actions of the executive to carry out laws. And he said this could really have dangerously limited the state's response if it if it had been in place in the early days of the pandemic. So remember when we had a couple of Miami U students who had gone to China? We hadn't even had a case confirmed yet, but they had taken a trip to China and come back and I think they had some symptoms and so they were quarantined and we were awaiting the results. I think they eventually, you know, tested negative, but he said what if they were not cooperative, you know, and we had to, you know, require them to quarantine. We wouldn't have been able to do that. And he cited like Ebola, he said which is real, like, you know, Ebola is still out there in the world and if a traveler is suspected to have been exposed, you know, you've just got to have the the power to do something about that. And he also kept saying, you know, it's not about me and my power. He said, when the unknown becomes known and the hypothetical becomes real, the local health department and the governor's office have to have the ability to save lives. This isn't about me. It would be absolutely irresponsible for me to do anything but veto this bill. Well, the other problem is, is that there is a delineation of powers in the Constitution that the legislature just can't unilaterally change. To change the Constitution, you have to have a vote of the people. So so clearly, even if they override his veto, this is headed to the courts and the Ohio Supreme Court will ultimately be the decider of whether they're able to do what they did with this bill. We talked about this earlier, that, that the legislature at one point had said, we need to do a thorough rethinking of our approach to public health. And they didn't. This is a knee jerk. Let's restrict the governor. Let's, you know, it's the the Josh Mandel masks are bad. Open it up. Open it up. Yeah. Nonsense. And they have every intention of overriding it. They said they've got the votes to do so. So, you know, unless they 
talk some more and and work something out or DeWine uses his powers of persuasion, you know, you're right. It could end up in court. DeWine really wouldn't go there, you know, when they asked him about, you know, okay, if you get overridden, what's going to happen, you know? Although he did say he thought it was, there were things that were unconstitutional. Oh, he certainly did. He certainly did. But, um, but, but the, the, the sad thing is, is that the county health departments, as we talked about, are hacks. They've been incompetent in many ways throughout this pandemic. And the state health department has has bollocked up this thing repeatedly when they were doing the contact tracing. They weren't asking people where they thought they got it, which would have been helpful in stopping the spread. We do need to review the best way to deal with the pandemic, but this is not a good faith effort to do that. And that's a shame because it was a chance to say, what is the best way to keep people safe? You know, should we have county health boards that are that are not accountable to anybody or should we have government health departments that are? But we're not asking those questions because the, the people in our legislature are just not doing the public's business. They're not doing it with House Bill 6. They're not doing it with lots of things. And this isn't it. So sad. Yep. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does data guru Rich Exner, whose work helped get gerrymandering reform on the ballot a few years ago, have hope that the next redistricting will make Ohio's representation in office look more like the voter breakdown by party in the state. Jen Cahoon, we're coming up on it. This is the first time we redraw the lines under the method that voters approved a couple years ago. Again, largely part because of Rich's work. <laughs> what is his hope? He, he's optimistic. Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, I'm really glad he looked into this because we've been focused so much on the congressional redistricting. That seems to get a lot more attention, probably because we only have 16 congressional districts and there are really egregious examples you can point to, like the snake on the lake. But Rich dove into the rules for the reforms that have been made to the redistricting for the legislative, the state legislative districts. And there's a bit of a difference here from the congressional rules. He basically found that if they follow these rules closely, the Republicans could very well lose their supermajorities that they have now in the state legislature. I mean, that's not to say that the Democrats are going to take over, but it could be much less of a lopsided situation like it is now. So first of all, this the state constitution was changed in 2015, a few years before the congressional reforms were passed. And in there is a requirement, and this is unlike the congressional reform, which Republicans got rid of this provision in that one. But every 10 years, they're supposed to, there, there's a requirement to look back at past statewide elections from the previous decade and build the maps that are representative of the, of the state's true political leanings. So just to give you an example, so they've got to look at the races for president, U.S. Senate, governor, auditor, attorney general, secretary of state and treasurer. And then then they have to the proportion of districts that favor each political party need to correspond closely to the statewide preference of the voter. So there's like 16 races they have to look at. That includes Barack Obama's win, Donald Trump's win, Mike DeWine's win. And if you take all those races together they show that that a 54% to 46% advantage for the Republicans over the Democrats. However, <laughs> you know, it's much more lopsided in, in the legislature. Right. The Republicans now control 76% of the Ohio Senate seats and 64% in the House. 
And that's because when they drew these maps under the previous rules in 2011 for the races that started in 2012, you know, when they were used for the first time, the Republicans won 60 of the 99 House races. And even though the Democrats received more votes overall in those races, and then it just got, you know, more lopsided from there. So this is the first time now this fall when they sit down with these numbers that they've got to use this political test in addition to just general stricter restrictions about, you know, how they split communities and so forth. So I thought this was a really interesting angle on that, especially since, you know, in one of the other segments, we talked about the supermajority that the Republicans have to override Governor Mike DeWine on things like health orders. So that supermajority is is significant. Well, and we know whenever you have a supermajority, you really don't get good rule. I mean, Cuyahoga County is the opposite. It's overwhelmingly Democrat. The Republicans have no foothold. And we end up with nonsense because of that as well. I hope I hope he's right. Uh, it, it would be nice to get balance that more effectively reflects the state. We'll have to see. I, I just I don't trust anybody to, to actually yeah, follow up on this. Yeah, especially with the numbers coming late this time. Yeah. You know, they're under a tighter deadline and you can't discount the possibility of shenanigans. But, you know, as we said, we'll have to watch them closely and see if they're following the rules. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're often told that video games do not spark violence, but we have one unusual case involving jilted lovers and bombing from Northeast Ohio. Leila Tassi, tell us the tale. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so first of all, I don't think it's video games. I think actually, Chris, that this is live action combat. We'll get to that. Wait till you hear this one. (laughs) So prosecutors in Maryland filed federal weapons charges Thursday against Clayton McCoy, a 30-year-old who uh, is from Chesterland. And they say that he delivered a bomb to a man in Manchester, Maryland on October 30th, who apparently this guy was dating McCoy's love interest and that this bomb exploded and seriously injured this guy. According to the prosecutors, the bomber placed the device on the victim's front porch in a clear plastic bag that contained a cardboard box. And the victim's grandfather noticed the package. Uh, it was like 10 pounds and, and it had no return address. And he brought it inside the house. And the victim came home from work that night, opened the box. He found a smaller white box inside it. And when he opened that, there was like a small nail that appeared inserted in the box. And that was kind of pulled outward. So these are all <laughs> red flag. Don't <laughs> put this back on the porch. <laughs> He removed the nail and heard like a whistling or hissing sound. And then there was the blast and it exploded with BBs and these like triangular shaped metal pieces. And it caused really serious injury to this guy. Investigators in trying to determine who would have targeted him asked his girlfriend and she mentioned McCoy, who she had gotten to know on this role playing live action combat game. And this This isn't online. I'm almost positive because I Googled it. This is like where people dress up and they 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 play sword fighting and stuff like that. You uh, you think that that would be kind of frowned upon during a pandemic, but (laughs) they were in close touch online and they had planned this camping trip together in October. And when she told him that when he told her that he had feelings for her, she said she was in another relationship. And that was the the poor dude who ended up being the victim of this explosion. The, the victim said he knew McCoy for a few years and he didn't think that he could have been the one to have done this. But 
It turns out that on October 30th, according to the, the investigators, McCoy used Google Maps to get directions to the victim's house in Maryland. And then the device traveled to Maryland, according to GPS data. So it's a it's a poorly it's a terrible, terribly planned crime. I'll tell you that. Why why would someone do this and think that he would get away with this, especially with cell phone tracking capabilities? So but they had never met. The reason I thought it was an online game is because they had never met. So they just correspond online and then they get together to beat each other with make these weapons then. Yeah, I mean, my, my reading of 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 John Caniglia's story was was that they they had met, but that they were staying connected over email and and online. So they had, you know, a long distance friendship. But it's from when I Googled this, this this kind of of this particular kind of role playing game is an actual in-person uh, combat okay. with, like, you know, fake swords and things like that. It's in... Okay, you know. well... <laughs> fascinating. I mean, with shrapnel and everything. I mean, he, right. I'm surprised nobody died, but what a... It what sounds a like he was seriously burned and, and very badly injured, so uh, it'll be an interesting case to follow. Yeah, the guy's house was raided in Lake County yesterday and, and searched, and then they were unsealed the indictment. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week on this podcast. Layla, thanks for joining us this week. I hope you both have a good weekend. We've got to wrap it up. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. Mm-hmm.